In the springtime in rural towns, one common front page news item are grass fires, unplanned, uncontrolled. Grass fires scorch area was the headline for the top story on April 7th. Red Hook gets 13 alarms in one day, it said underneath. The article continued, spring winds and dried vegetation combine with flames this week throughout the area and bring about one of the busiest weekends in the history of the Red Hook Fire Department. On Saturday, one of the worst fires occurred at Curley's Corners, where firemen from Bard College, Tivoli, Milan, and Red Hook fought the blaze for four hours, end quote. I should note that Brian and I live at what is known as Curly Corners. Of course, I should also note that this local paper was the Red Hook Advertiser, and it was April 7, 1955. Historic Red Hook has this great archive of searchable local newspapers from our town's history, going back to the Red Hook Journal in 1866. You know I love local news. Town meetings, openings and closings, real estate, issues, scandal. I want to know what's going on, and I think you do too. The Red Hook Advertiser stopped publishing in 1969. But that doesn't mean that our town's news stopped making history. Down in the valley, moved up from the city. It's a new way of living, and I'm trying to get used to it. One park blues, half an ounce of an idiot. Ordered a Manhattan, and they call me a city, yeah. I'm Matt Zucker, and this is Sidian, learning to live and love life in the Hudson Valley. A lot going on with the show. We're on a regular every other Thursday schedule, if you didn't notice. Chronogrammy voting is also underway. And here's breaking news for you. Sidian has two new sponsors, Taconic Toastmasters and Hudson Valley Kitchen Design Center. Today I'm really excited because you'll get to know Emily Sacker, publisher of The Daily Catch, where I have a column, Ask a Sidian. I met Emily now more than a year ago at a neighbor's welcome event that Brian hosted with Historic Red Hook. Emily and I hit it off right away, of course. She, after all, is a serious journalist covering the local area, and I'm an unserious, minor media personality poking my nose into things. We have everything in common. Luckily, she brings serious journalism chops to Red Hook. We talk about her story from interning for Bob Woodward at the Washington Post and being a journalist at Newsday where she won many awards, including being twice the winner of the Grand Prize for Distinguished Reporting by Educational Writers of America. Her book, Shut Up and Let the Lady Teach, published by Simon & Schuster, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. We'll talk about Emily's career in journalism and also getting her master's in art history. I asked her how it's going with the paper, the story that she's most proud of, how the Ukraine coverage came to be, what the connection is to our town, and what she thinks success looks like. Plus, in sharing her favorite places in the Hudson Valley, Emily breaks news and exclusive here on the City of Podcast. Okay, that was more than a lead. Let's meet Emily. Hi, Emily. 
Hi, Matt. Thank you for coming on. This is so funny. This is like reverse tables. Now I'm interviewing you and you're my boss. So it's like, I hope I behave. <laughs> I don't quite look at it that way. We're collaborators. We're you're my editor. You're my editor. Oh, well, yeah. We're all each other's editors in life these days, right? Yeah. It takes a village. So my, my first question for you is about your connection to the Hudson Valley and, and these towns. I don't remember how well you know them or if you grew up here or you moved here or what your story is. So I did not grow up here. I grew up in the Midwest in St. Louis, Missouri. This is actually my second round in Red Hook, though. I didn't go to elementary school here, which, as we've discussed, is probably the thing that makes you a, a real Red Hooker. So I'll yeah. never have that claim to fame. But I did have a house up here on Starberrick Road in the 90s. Oh. The children were little kids. And uh, it was a sort of a starter house. It was a weekend house. But we spent a great deal of time here. And I loved it. And about 2015, I began to return up here. I started teaching through Bard Early College um, Hudson. I was teaching art history there. I, I have a second life as an art historian. And I also began to teach in several prisons here, one through the Bard Prison Initiative and also through a program called Hudson Link. And I was teaching in the prisons and I started to spend evenings up here in our house here. And little by little, I decided, I think I need to live here. This is pretty fabulous. So moved here full time in 2016. So I guess I'm inching towards... 10 years in total, about 10 years in total, which certainly still qualifies me as a newbie from what- Yeah, although in marketing, we call that a boomerang when you come back to somewhere. Oh, okay. I'm a boomerang, but not a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Daily Catch, but what was the news source situation when you were here the first time? I don't think I paid any attention. I thought of myself <laughs> as a weekender. You know, I didn't pay attention to town government. I'm embarrassed to say that, but I, I didn't. And as soon as I came back up here to live, I realized I really cared a lot about what was going on in the town. And I'm also older, right? So I wasn't supervising two little children running around. I was supervising my own community. So what is your career story in terms of art historian and journalism? How did that come about? I, Those. Yeah. So I am a journalist before I am anything else. I, I never studied journalism formally but I always worked on newspapers. I paid my way through college by working on newspapers in the Bay Area and San Francisco. I went to work for Bob Woodward at the Washington Post <gasps> after, that's something that people, very few people know about that about my story. Wow. Yeah, I did an internship at the Portland Oregonian in my junior year of college, after my junior year. And then after my senior year, Watergate was very burning, very bright in my mind still. And I applied for an internship at the Washington Post, and I was successful in obtaining that. And I worked on the Metro team under Bob Woodward for a summer. And then I actually stayed on. I was invited to stay on, and I worked at the Post for a few more months before I got my first job in New Jersey. And I then spent 17 or 18 years as an adult journalist covering, I say adult journalist because I ultimately left normal mainstream journalism and went into children's journalism at Scholastic. I did that after New York Newsday, the paper where I had spent my career, folded in 1995. The beginning, the demise of print journalism, which does play into the story of the Daily Catch because we are not a print product. Um, journalism became less interesting to me. I wanted to do other things. 
it was the dawn, the nascent ascent of the digital world. The internet was just being created, the World Wide Web. And I wanted to get into that. So at Scholastic, pivoted my career and I began to work in a lifestyle journalism. I was the site director of Better Homes and Gardens and Ladies Home Journal Online. I ran those very large uh, multi-million daily page view websites for a number of years, more than five years. Then went to Reader's Digest in Pleasantville. That was actually a return a little bit to the Hudson Valley and did a few things in the digital space. And while I was doing those things, I started to want to improve my weekend life. So I applied to become a docent in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2004. And uh, it's funny that we're talking about this because just last night I was writing to one of my professors who's now in her 70s, but she was in her late 40s, early 50s at the time. And I was studying at the Met to be this docent. And I came up to her and I said, I just love this stuff. What do I do? I don't know anything about art history except what I've learned here at the Metropolitan on Saturday mornings from nine to one. She said, well, of course you do what everybody does. You go and get a master's degree in art history at Hunter, (laughs) Hunter College. So I had to actually redo most of my undergrad degree. I had to become kind of a major in art history because the, the requirements to be admitted for the master's program were quite stiff there at, at, at Hunter. And I went and did that. I took undergrad courses with a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds at night and during the day. And I eventually applied and became an MA art history student. It took me 11 years to get my degree. And I just got it in 2017. I got my master's degree. Wow. And I started a business called Heart of the Art NYC. And I give tours, kind of bespoke custom tours. My clientele is largely celebrities. And I also give tours to regular folks who are coming into town. And we go to MoMA, we go to the Met. And I also work with a group called the Orchid Foundation, which is a group of girls from Harlem. And I am their art historian sort of ambassador. To the do, you have a period, do you have a certain period of art that is your thing? So my, my thesis was on a group of very interesting gay male artists in the middle of the 20th century. And I studied their work. Realists, artists working around the same time as Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock was doing his splashy, you know, throw the canvas, throw, throw the paint on the canvas. These artists were very much focused on realism and Renaissance styles. And my thesis is about them. So I guess you would say I'm an Americanist, but because I tour at MoMA and the Met, you got to know it all. You got to be able to not know it well the way an expert would but I need to know it well enough to explain it. And I'm constantly looking at art. So that's my hobby now that I have a new career as the editor of the Daily Catch. On any given day, I'm some art, some journalism, more journalism, more art. It kind of, they kind of go together in some weird ways. So let's talk about the Daily Catch. So how did you go from writing and working for a paper to having the chutzpah to start one? So first of all, we have to know that there have been a long number of years, a few decades of a gap between when I was last working for a daily newspaper and what I'm doing today. And I think that was a really good break because I wasn't thinking about journalism. I wasn't doing journalism. I wasn't burned out on journalism the way one could get. At the same time, I was 
realizing through other things happening in my life that I always liked to ask questions and I still liked to write. So a few years ago, a friend of mine, Michael Waldholz, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the Wall Street Journal, invited me to do some citizen journalism for a product in Hudson. And I realized I enjoyed writing and, and journalism as I still just described it to you, but I didn't necessarily believe in the citizen journalism model. I feel that good journalism needs to come from people who are trained. It's, and I don't mean going to school. I don't mean you need to learn it in a classroom, but there are skills and practices and policies that we learn by doing it professionally. So I also discovered that I had enough technical skill. I can't turn on my, my arrow that you asked me to turn on to silence my audio and my video, but I, <laughs> I have that technical back end knowledge. I realized I could set this up on WordPress and we're on a very simple platform hosted by a third party. And I made some phone calls one day, totally on a lark. And I said, if I had 300 stories to move over and sit on your back end, and I wanted to publish a couple stories a day with some fun photographs from my iPhone, could you support me? And I said, yeah, that would cost you $238 a month. Amazing. And I was like, wait, say that again. Are, are you sure you understand what it is I want to do? Oh, yes, they said. And I said, how many customers, how many subscribers can I have? Oh, up to 10,000. <laughs> so it suddenly became real possible. Yeah. and possible. Exactly. It became possible to create this thing. What I needed was the time to write the stories. And that, if we want to talk about the pain points of doing this, staffing is the biggest pain point because I can't be the publisher and the writer and the editor and the photographer and the ad salesman all at once, right? That's what I've learned from this experience. But we're somehow doing it. We're somehow, and we're growing rapidly. From my perspective, the Daily Catch was a hit the second you turned it on because everyone was talking about it right away. Everyone was reading it right away. And it sounds like it's going really well. And now it's almost a year, right? It's going to be a year and two months. And I still sort of pinch myself because I haven't done the things that a, a marketing expert like you would tell me to do to make this a success. I, I wouldn't say that I'm operating by the skin of my teeth, but to some extent, I'm just following almost an AA principle. I have a friend who's an AA and she says, just do the next right thing. So each day I get up and I just try to do what I think is the next thing to do. For example, a couple of days ago, I got a letter from a reader, a new reader, who told me that he didn't think our coverage of Ukraine was pertinent. We can talk about what that is, what we're doing there. I said, I want to go to lunch with you. I want you to tell me everything you're thinking. Well, we went to breakfast, as it turns out, at Taste Buds, which is the back office of yeah. the Daily Catch. It's our meeting room. And he told me that he had a marketing background. And we started talking not about Ukraine, but about some of the information he would like to have if he were going to advise the daily catch. So yesterday, last night, I sat at home and I made a little survey and I put it up on Google Forms. Yeah, I saw and that. As of this morning, we have 112 responses 
And I know now 75 times more or 112 times more than I knew yesterday at this time about my readers. I can tell you how many are men and women, if you believe the survey, you know, it's a self-selected group of people filling it out. I know where they're from. I know some of the things anecdotally that they think about what we're doing. So that's an example of don't think too much. Don't go out and ask, you know, a Madison Avenue guy to do the survey for you. Just do the next right thing. And that's my motto. Excited to share that Hudson Valley Kitchen Design Center, an area expert for kitchens, bathrooms, pantries, offices, closets, and yes, even home movie theaters, is now a sponsor of Cityit. Now, when you've got a room to rethink, refresh, or reimagine, you know who to call. For Cityit listeners, just mention the podcast to save $500 off a project of $5,000 or more. See recent projects and fun on Instagram, HV Kitchen Design Center. Visit their site at hvkitchendesign.com or call 845-615-9410 about a consultation. Links also from cityat.com. Thanks, Hudson Valley Kitchen Design Center. I can already feel Brian dialing your number. Now back to the show. So what does success look like? When I say how's, like it's going well, what does that look like? So it's a little bit what, what do my readers tell me success looks like? We started out with about 300 subscribers just about a year ago, a little, you know, 10 months ago. And today we have 1,712, 1,712 people have subscribed to the Daily Catch. So that's a, a very large increase, right? We've done no advertising. We've done no promotion, no direct mail marketing. We have two signs that are yeah. up. One is at the corner of the four corners near the school. And one is in front of the Almondorf Inn, right? Those are our two little signs. We've had others, but they've been, they've gone away. So I think circulation gain is is a very important metric. And now that we've seen that we've grown in that way, we will begin to think about advertising. We are a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. And there are some restrictions around how we get advertising and what we promise to our advertisers. That's one way. Just Meeting certain journalistic standards, I think, is for me the most important thing. Doing, creating a diet of stories that feels pertinent to that reader base. And who is that reader base? So I've told you it's the 1,712 people, apparently, but it's also people like you, people who I trust, who I can go to and say, should I be covering this differently? Should I have more farmer coverage? Should we do more about the environment? Do we have the right mix of BART? And I don't know that I have the answers yet. And I have to tell myself, that's okay. We don't have to know today or next month whether we're hitting those those percentages correctly, right? I think the third thing is wanting to hear from others that they like what we're doing and they'd like us to come to their town. So several people from Rhinebeck, leaders in Rhinebeck have asked us to come to Rhinebeck. A few months ago, I got the most delightful email from the supervisor in Hyde Park. And she said, what would it take for you to come to Hyde Park? Amazing. And I had to say to her a lot, it's gonna take a lot of time for us to get to Hyde Park because my goal is not to be bigger. My goal is to be better, to be both broad and deep in Red Hook, right? 
And now, as you know, we are going very slowly dipping our toe into Rhinebeck. We are not trying to be the daily catch in Rhinebeck in the same way that we are in Red Hook, but we are hoping, I am hoping within the next year, we will be as strong there as we are here. How do you keep the frequency of, you chose the daily catch, not the weekly catch, not the whenever I get around to doing it. <laughs> that, I thought that was close, but that takes a lot of work and a lot of pressure and you're doing it and you've got a team I know, but like still, how did you decide to do a daily? First of all, I liked how it sounded. So I liked how the Red Hook daily catch sounded. I didn't really like how the catch sounded. Right. Although people call it the catch, which I think is pretty funny. First was, what does it mean to be the daily catch? And to me, it meant that we on average would publish every day, on average, one story a day. And I said, maybe not on Saturdays, maybe we'll take the Shabbos off. <laughs> so I thought, could we put out five to six stories a week? And I thought we could. I thought certainly there was enough content. So there's two questions there, really. There's the, can we get it done? Can we get a story out every day? And is there enough to say every day? And the answer to both turns out to be yes. And my team is actually very small. My team is me. I edit. My team is Victor Feldman, who until a month and a half ago, February 14th, Valentine's Day, was a freelance writer for us, who also had a myriad other things. He's our first staff hire. Nice. That's it. That's it. Then we have some delightful columnists, you, who've been a columnist writing the City at Column. We have a new columnist, John Rolfe, who used to be a columnist for the Poughkeepsie Journal, lives mm -hmm. in Red Hook. He's now writing for us. And then we have an events editor who works about 15 hours a week. Thanks to her, we have an events column, which I learned now from our survey, is our second most popular area. I can also look at traffic, you know, what kind of traffic. Yeah. So I think daily has proven to be possible. Last week, we had our, our most productive week. We produced 12 articles last week, wow. two of which were from our Ukraine correspondent. And the balance were local, local stories, local stuff. So in terms of stories, maybe talk about what you, maybe talk about what you're most proud of, or you think is the most interesting. I mean, it's been a year, so you've got hundreds of stories. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very proud of a piece that we did um, on the 20 largest landholders in Red Hook. This story was very challenging to do, and it leads into our Ukraine coverage in an interesting way. The idea was to go through Dutchess County Parcel Access, which is a publicly available online tool that anyone can use, including somebody who lives in Indiana. And you can look up a parcel and find out who owns it, what the property taxes are, and so forth on that parcel, and, and a lot of other information. And I thought there must be a way that we could get them to download their database to us and release it to us in a way that would allow us to play around with it and pull together the 10 largest, 20 largest, 80 largest landholders. And that project turned out to be quite complicated, learning to amass the data, co collate the data, because we have many landholders in Red Hook who own multiple parcels, including, for example, our town supervisor who owns more than 500 acres, but owns them over a course of, of parcels. So 
coming up with the story idea was one thing, executing it was another. And then once we had the table pulled together and we knew who the 20 largest landholders were, we had to actually know who they were. Like we knew who their names were, but finding out what is, you know, Helping Hands LLC took another set of digging, took another set of, of, of hourly workers, right? So that project is something I'm proud of. I don't know that it will ever win any awards, but it's gotten a lot of traction. A lot of people are still talking about it. I get calls about it. People ask me questions about it. How can they use parcel access? And we're now doing that same story in Rhinebeck. So we've actually pulled together the data and we now have to go and do our footwork uh, on the street and figure out who the, the folks are. So that's an example of what I would call enterprise journalism, something that I was trained to, to realize and to feel is very important to the success of a newspaper. But I think equally important is beat coverage, by which I mean sticking with a story over time, as we did, for example, on the, on the short-term rental coverage. Right. And that was a very important topic for our town that I think had we not been here, many people would not have known about. It would have happened in the dark room of the town board, which remember, we're going through COVID. This paper was launched during COVID when being part of town government was even more difficult than maybe it even is today, but certainly more difficult than it was three years from three years ago, right? So our goal in covering the short-term rental issue wasn't just to show up at the meetings, but to dig in and to talk to some of the renters, to talk to some of the hosts, to explain the law. It was a 27-page bill, if I remember correctly, 24-page bill. Explain that to people. Do a Q&A. So really dig in in a sophisticated and thorough way to that coverage. And I had to also explore and explain that I was a host, right? So I had a little skin in that game, a lot of skin in that game. And I had to make sure that I covered that issue judiciously and carefully. That's another thing that I think is so interesting about a small town like this, Matt, is we wear so many hats. I mean, look at you. You're engaged as a publisher yourself, as an audio publisher, a radio publisher. You're also involved in certain topics, certain issues. You may be a member of a CSA. You know, we, we don't just sit here in our silos, right? I'm a member of the EDC. I'm working right now on a grant proposal for our farmers to get farm worker housing restored and renovated and replaced. Do I say I can't do that because I'm publishing a newspaper? You know, that's something that maybe the Salzburgers could have done with the Times years ago, but that's not something that, that I have the luxury of being able to do if I care about my community. So how do stories come about? Are you developing most of the story ideas? Do people send you in, oh, you should, this is happening, you should know about this? How do you find out what to decide whether to pursue or not? So that gets into another philosophy, which is that we are both a push and a pull stream for information. So all newspapers, all, all news outlets anywhere receive tips. And some of the tips are useless and some of the tips are worthwhile. We cover town government in its most obvious way by going to meetings, right? That's, that's the basic bread and butter of a small town enterprise like ours. We go to the board of ed, we go to the town board, we go to the zoning board when there is one, we go to the planning board. And in a town like Red Hook, which has not only the town government, but also has two village governments, that's a lot of meetings. 
It's a yep. lot of night meetings, right? Yep. From a business perspective, this would all be merged together into one thing, but I know that's not going to fly. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that would be so helpful. Could you make that happen? The daily catch? Yeah. We could cover two more towns. You know, I think about it, but I'm like, I'm not going there. <laughs> then we have Bard College, which is a whole other entity unto itself. And Bard has its own issues. Will it have a polling place? You know, just when you think that story is, is done and decided, that one rears its head. So we're also trying to cover Bard. And we've been careful about deciding we are not covering Bard for the students of Bard, right? That's on Bard to do. We are covering Bard in its relevance to the community of Red Hook. Right. Nice. So that may mean that we cover an interesting uh, professor who has a presence in Red Hook or whose concert people attend. I'm starting to work on a piece on opera singer Stephanie Blythe, who's an opera singer for the Met, but who also runs the chorale opera program at Bard. Yeah, I went to one of the performances. She's amazing. That whole She's program amazing. is amazing. The, the music programs at Bard are, are really exceptional. So, you know, people go to the Fisher Center, they may see or hear Stephanie Blythe or her students singing. So she becomes a relevant person. So features are always something we want to have as part of our diet, our, our daily, or at least our weekly or biweekly diet, covering the farmers. There seems to be a great interest, we are learning from our surveys, in the life of our farmers. And not just the people who own the farms, but the people who work on the farms yeah. who will start to arrive in April. So we're going to try this year. We didn't do this last year, but we're going to try to dig in this year to more coverage of the life of the farm workers. So that will be an, an area of expansion. I think we are weak in some areas. We don't cover health or health policy at all right now. And I think that's in part due to the fact that we came into the scene when COVID was already such a such a kind of over the hill kind of story. But had we launched at the outset of COVID in January or February of 2020, I would have loved to have covered the onset of COVID, people we lost to COVID. What was it like to live through COVID for so many of our workers? So we'll have to try to figure out how we get into health coverage for the community. Of so we, we get our features, we try to do our enterprise, and we try to cover our bread and butter. And I'm always upset when we get beat, meaning the Poughkeepsie Journal or the Kingston Freeman cover our bread and butter better or faster or sooner than we do. It happens extremely rarely, but when it happens, I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I keep saying to people, I want to break exclusives. And they're like, against who? Like, who's the competition? <laughs> you know, Matt, I was brought up in a four daily newspaper town. That's where I came of age. The New York Times, the New York Post, the Daily News, and Newsday. Every morning, I had to get up and listen to WNYC and worry that we had been beat, that I had been beat. I was an education reporter, and I never wanted to hear they were quoting the Daily News or the New York Times. I wanted to be the only one to break a story. Well, two days ago, we broke a story that Amtrak is going to begin work on the Rhinecliff train station this fall. And that was really fun. And I put a little exclusive next to the story headline. Oh, good. Saying, oh my God, who am I trying to, who am I trying to convince? We knew the PFC Journal didn't have it. We knew the Kingston Freeman didn't have it. And we're going to make that our story. That's amazing. 
So, well, here, let's go to the, um, the Hudson Valley question. My brother-in-law suggested I ask every guest a signature question. So mine really is for everybody about where do you go that people may not know about? What's your, what's your favorite secret, not so secret go-to spot in the Hudson Valley and the Catskills or the Berkshires? Okay. Do I get to tell you both the one I go to now? And then can I tell you the one I'm going to be going to? Yeah. I'm going to break some news today. On your, on your program. All right. My go-to place for both serenity and exercise is the hiking trail behind the FDR estate. Oh. You ever been there? No. So that is a special, special place. And if you do the hiking trail, it's about 3.4 miles and you get 34 flights on your exercise app and you get over 10,000 steps. Now, let me tell you how to get there. So you go down Route 9 and you put on your GPS, FDR, whatever it is, National Historic Site. You drive to the back behind the visitor center where the garden areas are. You park your car there. You walk behind those gardens and you will then see a paved sort of like a driveway. And that driveway turns into a walking trail. And it's wide enough to walk a stride. So a person can be with a friend. You're not walking single file. It's like a, almost like a carriage road. And I'm sure it was a carriage road for FDR back in the day. And it's a series of trails, very well marked. And it's lovely. And if you keep walking, you'll eventually connect at the northern end of this trail complex to another trail that heads off to the Vanderbilts. But I don't think you can actually get all the way to the Vanderbilt mansion, but you can get really close to it. And on your left side, on your west flank, you'll be looking over the Hudson River nice. at a certain point. It's just a special place, right? It's a great meeting place if you're meeting someone from Poughkeepsie, if you're meeting someone from Ulster, and it's a lovely place to go. You can bring your dog. It's lovely in the winter too. You can bring your snowshoes or your crampons and beautiful, and it has water, water features, little beautiful waterfalls and streams all through. Love it. I didn't know this one. Now I'm going to break some, some news for you. Is this an exclusive? This is an exclusive. We haven't even reported it yet in the Daily Catch, but we will. <laughs> in the most recent budget, there is $1 million in the Dutchess County budget for a splash pad at Wilcox Park. <gasps> I love Wilcox Park. Did you know that? They're digging. I didn't know. No, I didn't notice. Digging, they're digging it right now. They're digging. It's going to be for kids, but apparently, you know, grownups will have some time too. It's going to be one of those fabulous splashy pad things with waterfalls and fun things for kids. I think it's near down near where the lake is. Yeah. Yeah. It must be. I love Wilcox That's Park. That's a really cool thing, right? It's in Milan, but it's, it's certainly very close to Red Hook and we're co-opting Milan for this particular story. That's terrific. Lucidia covers the region. So that we're in. So over the last couple of weeks, you've started to cover Ukraine because you had some staff in Ukraine. So maybe you can tell us about what that's, that's been like, because it's really, I mean, it's really interesting. It's extremely personal. It's someone's very individual story. And we get to see that kind of firsthand. So let me tell you how we found him, because there's some controversy around whether 
a small daily newspaper in Red Hook should even be covering the travails of a man in a little town called Ivanovka outside of Kramatorsk, right? So this gentleman, I mentioned the story about the 10 or 20 largest land holdings in Red Hook. This man helped me to analyze the data. There were some issues with the data. There were some conundrums I couldn't figure out with the data, some things that didn't make sense. And I went looking for an editor on a news site or on a, on a uh, employment site called journalismjobs.com. And he applied for the job. He applied for a different job, but he said, do you ever have any data analytics stories? And he's writing this to me in broken English. And I thought, where are you from? Oh, Ukraine. This was, you know, a few months ago. This was in like October. Helped me with the story. When it became obvious that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine, I sent him an email and I said, could you write for us? Could you just take your hand? Tell us what the first few days of this war are like. And he sent me the first few entries. And I made some phone calls and I asked some of our readers, what do you think? Can this be relevant to our readers in the Daily Catch, to our readers in Red Hook, to our readers in Rhinebeck? And the views were split, but they were in favor of cover this for two reasons. First of all, the fact that he already had a connection to Red Hook made him of some interest to people. Secondly, and perhaps just as important, he lives in a town not so unlike Red Hook. And the fact that in this extremely interconnected world in which we live, he cared to share his story with readers of the Daily Catch made him compelling to me. And it's very emotional to be talking to him, not verbally. We don't talk the way you and I are talking. That would be possible, but he's afraid to do that. So we are talking by email, right? every day. And some of what he tells me, we don't run in the newspaper, but a great deal of what he tells me, we do. And again, I think the view on whether we should cover this is somewhat mixed, but my feeling is it's digital. You don't like it, swipe by it, right? It's there for those of us who would like a connection. Yeah. And in the end, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's your call. Like you have the judgment and you make the decision. And I do the same thing for myself, but in the end, don't complain at me, go start your own thing. We have to trust you as editor to figure out what to cover and what not to cover. And we won't always like it, but we have to respect and appreciate it because it's a gift. Thank you. I, I really appreciate your saying that the daily catch is a gift because I think that some people do have a sense that they are and I hope I hope this sounds politically fair, that they're entitled to it now. And, you know, it's not only that it's there, it's there and it's free. It's free. Yeah, every, every local paper has folded. We're lucky to have it for a week, much less a year and growing. We, we were in what was called or what is called a news desert, which is to say an area where there once was news, there once was news coverage, there once was a newspaper, there were several and we still have the Northern Duchess News, but we don't have really, until the Daily Catch, or we didn't really have a newspaper, and now we do. And our goal is to keep it free forever, although we have readers who have generously donated. Last week, we got a commitment for a $10,000 donation, which oh. is 
18% of our operating budget for this year. So that's huge, right? And we are trying to raise money, but, but our commitment is to keep it free. I think what I would like our readers to know is that I am an open door. People can reach me. They can meet with me. They can share ideas with me. They can be part of the Daily Catch in a way that I think is almost impossible in many newspapers. They can also participate by sharing their views at the end of every story. Yeah, I saw that the comments are on. Yeah, you can comment. Comments are on and we get lots of comments and we forward all comments to the relevant source. Sometimes we forward things to the mayor, to the supervisor, and they can have a dialogue with me. And I'm open and I try to be very non-defensive. At another time in my life, I might have taken all of this very personally, but I'm delighted that people want to be connected and that they want to criticize us. I mean, even that is a gift because it means people care and they're engaged and they're reading us and they're not discounting us. So that's very powerful. They can send an idea. I love when people send ideas. They can be anonymous. Um, I get ideas, you know, three or four a day and I respond to everybody. So if you're, if you're lonely and you want to write with, you want a pen pal, I could be your pen pal. <laughs> <laughs> and you're art historian. I'll ask, answer your questions about Picasso too. <laughs> Upstate and chill. Down in the valley moved up from the city. It's a new way of living and I'm trying to get used to it. One park people have an ounce of an idiot ordered in Manhattan and they call me a city, yeah. At first it hurt my feelings, but it's kind of got a ring to it. When you move to the country, they can tell when you're new to it. I'm looking at a place, but I'm trying to keep fitting in. It takes too long to be a local, so for now I'm a city, yeah. 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 I'm a city, yeah.